Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover, all for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5,000 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5,000. Enjoy. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at lesliemarshallshow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon and welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. I am your guest host this afternoon, Michelle Jawando. And you'll have to forgive me because I have a little bit of a cold, but that could not stop me from joining you amazing listeners and joining the family that is the Leslie Marshall Show. So I think we have a great show that is scheduled. I am a little bit of a suck up. I'm sorry. Um... We have a great show scheduled for you today. There is so many things happening in the world, and our goal is to always to give our listeners informative, up-to-date, knowledgeable information. And so when you're out at the water cooler, you have the most up-to-date information about what's going on in this world, who's it affecting, and how it's affecting you and your family. So coming to us for our first block of time, I'm excited that we actually have two of our guests in studio this afternoon um, who are going to join us to talk about something that was even previewed last night at the Democratic debate in Flint, Michigan, um, which I think all of us can agree was a, I think, a pretty exciting debate. Uh, if we, you guys can say yes. It's Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> They're like, should I say anything? Yes, yes. Um, well, let me introduce our guest, and then we can get started and get into the conversation. So joining me in studio, we have Tracy Ross, who's the Associate Director of the Poverty to Prosperity Program, and Danielle Solomon, who is our Director of Progress 2050 here at the Center for American Progress. Welcome, ladies. Thank you so much Hi. for having us. Well, so excited to have you guys in here. And one of the things that I really wanted to just get started and get the conversation talking about um, is Lessons from Flint. And YouTube put out a great paper last week. And as I think about the fact that this paper came out where you're thinking about these issues on a macro level, and then you have this really engaged Democratic debate last evening in Flint, Michigan, where you heard voices of mothers and those who are living there on the ground. Um, it was just a powerful moment. And I think it might be easy for a lot of people to just kind of walk away from Flint. So tell us how you got here, why you decided to do this paper, and kind of what your observations were even coming out of last night. Sure. So the I would, I'll start with the, the debate that took place in Flint. I think that it's incredible that um, it took place there for a couple reasons. Mainly, it gave um, uh, the public a chance to hear directly from people in ways that they haven't. They got to hear about how 
this community that's been greatly impacted is viewing the presidential election. But the other thing that makes it important is that this community has very good reason to mistrust government. So you have the two um, Democratic uh, hopefuls for the nomination um, in Flint saying these are the reasons why you should place your faith back into government even though you have every reason not to and these and we promise that we will um, uh, work for you so it was it was such an important ca- accountability mechanism through that debate but um, something that came up in the debate that I think was important and the reason why Danielle and I worked on this brief was that this isn't the only place that has um, dealt with um, environmental hazards. Uh, Right now, Cleveland is actually experiencing uh, higher lead levels than Flint is. So um, I think Danielle and I, um, you know, me being someone that focuses on on poverty and environmental justice issues, Danielle is also passionate about environmental justice um, and communities of color. I'll let her speak for herself. But we (laughs) we thought this was a great opportunity for us to come together and shine a light on the fact that this is all too common. No, I completely agree with what Tracy was saying. I'd also say that it just, it was great to see the Democratic candidates actually continue to shed light on this issue. A few days prior to that, the Republicans also held a debate uh, not far away from Flint in Detroit, and um, there was hardly any mention of the crisis in Flint. I think only one uh, candidate actually raised it and basically didn't really talk about the issues facing the community. So I think it was really great to see our Democratic candidates actually speaking about the issues facing the community in which they were sitting. Um, And I would just also add that I think... um, it's really important to like look at communities. I think all of us want healthy communities for our children to grow up in, and I think Flint is another reminder about the fact that we need clean water, healthy food, quality schools, and jobs so we can raise our families. So, Danielle, you, you mentioned kind of the socioeconomic impact that sometimes these decisions disproportionately impact certain communities more than others. Do you think that some of the kind of historical context of how Clint, I mean, how Flint developed as a city, maybe past redlining policies, did that play into where we are today? Yes, definitely. And I will actually let Tracy talk a little bit about that. A lot of her work has been around the history of redlining and things like that. But yes, Flint is actually 56% uh, African American, and it's also 40% of their residents are below poverty level. We saw that Flint historically was... Did you say 40%? Yes. Wow. Uh, we also know that Flint used to be this great city. Uh, it was the home of GM, where there it was a booming economy, lots of jobs. And then, um, unfortunately, a lot of the businesses went out of the city. Uh, Flint also does not have a grocery store. Um, there are a lot of problems with Flint. But I'll let Tracy kind of talk about the history of redlining and other Sure. Issues. So the, the fact that we have concentrated poverty, the fact that segregation endures is not an accident. It, this is by design. You know, we have a history in this country of the, the federal government investing and the strength and stability of white communities, um, and we're given uh, the um, local governments were given the autonomy to neglect uh, communities of color and and uh, low income communities. So the fact that this persists is not an accident. And actually, 70 percent of the African Americans living in the worst neighborhoods today are the children and grandchildren of those who lived in. The segregated neighborhoods in the 50s. Wow. So the, this is because, you know, if you have a house in your family, you know, especially if, you know, during the 50s, you, you went and got a house where you could. There were so many neighborhoods you couldn't. That house stays in a family. Mm-hmm. So just because we end segregation on the books doesn't mean that um, the, the stains of segregation were wiped out of our country. And I think with, you know, with regard to, to Flint, some people might say, well, um, how is this a racial issue if there's so many, so many white people uh, were impacted in Flint? And um, I think pointing out the, the fact that it's a majority black 
place is not to undermine the fact that white people were hurt. All people there deserve to ha have help, but it's no mistake that in our country, areas with dis um, disproportionate number of people of color in them are the ones that consistently see these sorts of issues. But can I can I push on, on that for a bit? So the emergency manor, manager was also African-American. Sure. And so there are some who say, well, listen, you had someone who was put in place by a governor who prior to this incident or mm -hmm. to the Flint crisis was basically considered a compassionate conservative. Um, and so he put in place someone who maybe looked like the community. Sure. And yet these decisions were still made. So how do you yeah. how do you deal with that kind of maybe dissonance? Yeah, absolutely. There? And, you know, this come this came up in um uh, not to bring up too many issues, but this came up in Baltimore mm -hmm. with the Freddie Gray case because you have a um, African American um, a uh, half the police um, that are involved in the case are African American. You have African American um, uh, uh, city council members. Um, you see this in health disparities. There are African American doctors, and yet still um, people have uh, doctors tend to give African Americans worse care. The fact of the matter is that we all need to do better by communities of color. So it isn't about placing blame on in individual white people. It's the fact that our systems are um, designed to um, disproportionately impact people of color. And unfortunately, people of all backgrounds enforce these systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would definitely, I, I would agree. I mean, I think it's less about, I mean, it's definitely about race, but I also think it's about political power. And what we see is that people of color do not have access to power. Um, and that's exactly what you see with the emergency manager situation. This was the ability of the governor to remove political power from the mayor and the city council out of their ability to actually decide whether or not they wanted water from Flint or they wanted water from Lake Huron. Um, I would like to also just raise about Baltimore. I mean, Baltimore is, uh, you know, a city and one of the wealthiest states in the country, in Maryland, and, but it also has a very long history of discrimination on transportation and housing, which impacts jobs and economic viability. So looking back even in 1972, Maryland actually, you know, approved new transit lines to help people um, and communities of color move towards uh, inner city Baltimore where the jobs were located. And that actually had passed the legislature, but then they stopped it when white residents in um, wealthier counties decided they did not want bus routes and public transportation running through their communities. Hmm. So I think we have a systematic historical problem that is failing people of color, and we need to ensure that those policies are modified um, immediately. This is not a way of moving forward, especially in considering in 2044 there will be a new majority, and it will be people of color. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for the afternoon. We will be back in a few minutes with our guests in studio, Tracy Ross and Danielle Solomon. Thanks so much for listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back 
You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your host for the afternoon, Michelle Jawando, and so glad that you gave me the opportunity to join you this afternoon. If you want to join in the conversation, and you know we love to hear from you, give us a call at 888-6LESLIE, which is 888-653-7543. And if you want to join in on the conversation, you can follow us at Michelle with one L Jawando. And our guest that we have in studio, Tracy Ross, you can follow her on Twitter at Tracy L. Ross or Danielle Solomon is at Danny INDC. So back in the studio, you may remember we have Tracy Ross, who's the associate director of the Poverty to Prosperity Program, and Danielle Solomon, who's the director of Progress 2050 here at the Center for American Progress. So ladies, one of the questions that I think most people feel some genuine sense of kind of disappointment that this happened in an American city. Um, and I think you hear that across both sides of the aisle. Um, I was watching some of the coverage even last night, and you saw Trump supporters who said, listen, we should do something about what's happening in Flint. I think where there's a real question is what is the thing that we do? You know, you have Ted Cruz and Mike Lee and others who are literally putting a hold or moving forward with money in the United States Senate. So there's questions about investing in infrastructure. Where do we go next? So what do you tell people who feel like, okay, we think something's wrong, but what do you do next? Well, there are a few things that should happen. I mean, number one, there definitely should be accountability. So the people uh, in government that allowed this to happen should be held accountable. And whether that means that the governor needs to resign or um, other you know, administration officials need to resign, that should happen. Accountability is a must. That's the first thing that has to happen to restore trust for the community. Two, I think that there needs to be investment in infrastructure. Pipes, um, highways, other infrastructure, building infrastructure needs to be reformed. We have not really put in, like infrastructure funding as a priority for this country. has always been put on the back burner, and it needs to move forward if we want to continue to be a successful nation. Um, three, I think there needs to be real investment for these children on um, Head Start, early education, education, wraparound medical and health um, services, these children are going to need a lot of help, and they're going to need a lot of help for a long period of time. So it's not just a little bit of money to help them initially, but they're going to need wraparound services for years to come. Unfortunately, you know, exposure to lead is you know, life-altering and devastating, and it's not something that there's a quick fix or a pill that you can take. Um, there's going to need to be consistent services to provide provided to this community. And Tracy, you made mention in one of the earlier segments that we actually see higher levels of lead in Cleveland, Ohio. And lest people forget, John Kasich is running for president of the United States, governor of Ohio. We haven't really heard a lot from him. So obviously this is something that's happening all over. Absolutely. That's, um, you know, to underscore one of the points Danielle was making, our, our country has not invested in its infrastructure. Uh, the um, American civil engineers have given uh, consistently over the past uh, almost decade, I believe, um, our infrastructure a D-plus rating. So the, the fact that um, we're not taking this seriously and that it could happen in a Cleveland and not get the amount of attention that's, you know, Flint, I think is is a unique moment because um, – the amount of attention that's 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 it's gaining right now, I think, is due to the fact that people are okay tolerating 
um, these sorts of environmental injustices. They're okay to un, um, tolerating the fact that we have this D plus rating, but every once in a while, the scales just tip just enough where people are outraged. Um, unfortunately, that outrage should be much earlier. So we, this this is occurring across the country, and um, you know, Danielle is exactly right to talk about the long term investments because you know children exposed to Lent are more likely to drop out of high school. They're more more likely to have tendencies towards violence. This exposure is is um, not able to be reversed, and so we're we're outraged today that you know there's a seven year old who has been poisoned. But when this child is 17 and possibly dropping out of high school, they're, they're, we have that risk of saying, well, they should pull themselves up from their bootstraps, not recognizing that his government poisoned him. So we have to, um, as we're talking about um, solutions to these problems, we need to talk about what needs to happen today, but also what needs to happen 10, 15, 20 years from now. And this is something that, you know, as we bring it home, I think for some of the listeners who are familiar, I share that I'm from, or I'm from New York, but I live in the great state of Maryland. Um, and my husband, born and raised here, and he often talks about Freddie Gray. Hi, husband, Will Jawanto. <laughs> hope you're listening. Um, he, born and raised here, but he talks about, in a broader historical context, Freddie Gray, that we killed Freddie Gray basically twice. Um, he was first poisoned by lead and was actually a family who had received a settlement from the city because of the lead in where he lived and then he was killed obviously later um, in his life. So this seems to be some familiar patterns that disproportionately fall on those who are most vulnerable. Absolutely, and, and I'm glad you brought up that instance. I'm going to give a, a quick shout-out to my new fellow, Ashley Blackwell, who's sitting in the studio, who's going to be working with, um, with my team on the intersection of criminal justice reform and disability. Um, and the, the fact that this that lead is a, um, a neurological issue, um, I think it needs to be treated as such, and that our systems are often not prepared to deal with those consequences. Our criminal justice system was not prepared to deal with someone who had been lead poisoned like Freddie Gray. Our school systems are often not prepared to deal with um, children who've been poisoned. So we need to fundamentally ensure that the systems in Flint, the systems in Cleveland, anywhere where there are these issues, you see this also in many places in Louisiana that have orange water coming out of the faucets, that the, the systems need to, um, one, we need to not be doing this, but because people have been exposed, we have to figure out how to properly um, help them navigate life. And Danielle, where do we go from here? Yeah, so I want to say there is some good news. It's not enough, but there is some good news. So HHS uh, last week actually extended uh, Medicaid benefits for um, the children and families in Flint. About 15,000 additional children up to the age of 21 can access Medicaid benefits. Um, $500,000 was also funded uh, to Flint Health Centers to help them hire more uh, service workers to help provide services to people in Flint. Um, USDA is funding, um, you know, access to fresh fruits and vegetables which is lacking in Flint. Mm. Um, and there's some other things going on, um, but as you mentioned earlier, uh, unfortunately, some of our senators on the other side of the aisle um, are holding up a huge pot of money for Flint um, in the Senate, and hopefully they will release that hold so some real dollars can flow to Flint so they can get the access to services and food and treatment that they need. Ladies, in studio, Tracy Ross, Danielle Solomon, you were wonderful. And thank you so much. The people of Flint know that you have some advocates on your side. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be back in a bit. Leslie Marshall. Real people. Real life. 
Real Talk, 888-6-LESLIE. afternoon and welcome back. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host, Michelle Jawando, joining you for the afternoon and so happy to be here. It's always a good time and I want you to join in the conversation. If you want to give us a call, go ahead and give us a ring at 888-6LESLIE or 888-653-7543. My Twitter handle is at Michelle Jawando and you can also follow the show at Leslie Marshall. Would love to hear from you. Back in the studio, I am joining you once again to talk all things SCOTUS. For our listeners who may not be familiar, I serve as the Vice President of Legal Progress here at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. And last week, I, along with about 400 of my closest friends, um, were out in front of the Supreme Court as the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the whole women's health case, which looks at trap laws in various states. So joining me to talk about that case, oral arguments, SCOTUS, and kind of the status for women's health in a number of southern states, but states all across the country. I have joining me Helene Krasnoff, who's the Director of Litigation and Law at Planned Parenthood. Hi, Helene. Having me. Thanks so much for being here. And also joining me on the phone, we have Heidi Williamson, who is a Senior Policy Researcher at here at the Center for American Progress. Hi, Heidi. Hi, Michelle. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me today. I know there's a lot of places that you could be, and you took some time out to join us today. So, Helene, I want to just start with you, because I one of the things that I was so struck is the kind of choice movement doesn't always get the kind of best reputation for showing out at big oral argument events. You know, you often see the signs of, you know, folks on the other side of the movement. And I don't often say the life movement because I tend to believe that we have to protect life when babies come and actually are a part of this country. And there seems to be an issue with that. But on the other side of the aisle, you often see folks out with signs. But I was so impressed with the energy and the engagement there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people out in front of the oral arguments last week, and it made me so incredibly proud. But give us your sense of how oral arguments went last week, and, and just share with our listeners why we're here right now. Sure. Well, first, I think that, that we had 3,000 uh, pro-choice activists who showed out in front of the court. Um, I got there quite early in the morning to go into the court and saw them both before and after, but uh, there were people out there playing music at 5 a.m. when my taxi pulled up to get in line, and so it was really an, <laughs> an incredible energy. It was, it was, um, it was. And then, you know, I think that the energy in the courtroom was really great, too. I was really pleased that a lot of the justices were really active in the questioning, and they really understood that these laws are both medically unnecessary and that they would actually hurt women um, by placing an enormous burden on their access to abortion. And there's no question that in the past 
few decades, this is the most important abortion case that the court has considered, and that, you know, women's right to really, their whole right to abortion is really on stake at the court, and I feel like a lot of the justices really understood that. So for our listeners who may not be familiar, why don't you just give them a little bit of background about what the oral arguments were centered on? Sure. So this involves a 2013 Texas restriction called HB2, Texas House Bill 2. Um, It is the law imposed a number of medically unnecessary restrictions on access to abortion in Texas. It's the law that spawned the historic protests at the Capitol in Austin and inspired Wendy Davis's historic filibuster. Um, And this case in particular centers on two provisions of that law. One, a requirement that physicians who perform abortions have admitting privileges at a local hospital, a hospital within 30 miles of where the abortion is performed. Admitting privileges are a a grant that the hospital gives for doctors to treat patients within the hospital. Um, Abortion is such a safe procedure that Physicians who provide abortion very rarely need to use a hospital and so are often unable to obtain privileges for reasons that are totally unrelated to their quality of care. Uh, And the second restriction is a requirement that all abortions be performed in ambulatory surgical centers, which are like hospital-style outpatient facilities that are built and equipped for procedures that are of a much um, greater risk, often involving general anesthesia, than abortion. And so those are the two restrictions the court was considering. Those restrictions together would leave Texas, a state with 5.4 million women of reproductive age with only 10 providers statewide, down from 40 before the law's enactment. Wow. And now, I know, Heidi, you, you, you recently put out a piece in anticipation of the oral arguments. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about um, that brief? Sure. Um, I recently wrote um, a piece in Top Poverty that really discussed the economic impact this has on the women who are subjected to this law in Texas. I think that if you pull the lens back and not just look at the the impact of HB2, you also look at the efforts the state has gone through to defund Planned Parenthood, as well as what the economic um, overtone of the state is for women, right? You have more single heads of household there than you do in many states. A, a female single head of household is more likely to be low income, and you don't have a lot of support that um, organizations like Center for American Progress uh, promote often, right? Like supports for child care, supports for paid leave. So when you talk about um, this, this, um, the reality of making healthcare virtually inaccessible, you are in many ways handcuffing women to a life of poverty, um, and you're putting them in a position where they can't protect their health or the health of their families. And I think it's important for people to understand that reproductive, comprehensive reproductive health care, including abortion access, is an economic issue. We're talking about a bread and butter table issue that keeps families afloat, that makes that ensures that women are healthy and ensures that they can be the breadwinners and co-breadwinners that they need to be for their families. 
And so, Helene, I think oftentimes these kind of oral arguments seem very kind of theoretical for people. And so they know that the Supreme Court hears these cases, but we don't actually talk about the impact. And, you know, you mentioned that with the passage of this law, that there's, there seem to be very few places for access for women to even get to in the huge state of Texas. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what it means in terms of the real tangible effects of a law like this. Sure. Um, the admitting privileges law, when it, uh, around when it took effect, about half of the providers in the state have already closed in the past few years, down to 20 providers from previously, like I said, 40. And then there was a period of time in October 2014 when the lower court let this law go into effect, which I think at oral argument, Justice Kagan kind of called like the perfect controlled experiment on seeing what would happen. And what happened was at Planned Parenthood health centers across Texas, there was an immediate and devastating impact. Our health centers were flooded with calls. Patients were frightened. They were upset. They were confused. They didn't know where to turn. In Houston, our affiliate reported call volume from patients seeking abortion increased 170% that first day. In just the days after in Austin, we got seven times as many calls as before. Um, and this, is, this repeated itself throughout Texas. We saw the same thing last week when that same lower court let a Louisiana law go into effect, a law, a similar admitting privileges law, which there would close three out of the four providers in the state. Again, we were inundated with patients who had nowhere to go. And as a healthcare provider, we hear these stories from women that are unbelievably heartbreaking. Um, and these, for example, that in that 2014 when the law took effect in Houston, there, a woman came to the health center who had traveled from out of state the day the law the day the law before it went into effect, and she left her kids at home with a friend the night before so she could get. Um, to the clinic to have the mandatory ultrasound that Texas requires, and she um, woke up the next day to find that she hadn't, her doctor couldn't provide the procedure. She ended up getting to Planned Parenthood, but by the time she got to us in the afternoon, we weren't able to help her that day, and we encouraged her to stay at night. We tried to help her find lodging, but at the end of the day, she had to go back and pick up her kids. She couldn't be away from them another night, and truthfully, we don't know whatever happened to her um, or that she ever got the care she needs, and the statistics are bearing out this has happened. Um, right, right. So, uh, yeah, already some women are waiting in some cities 20 days already to get an abortion. Um, and there's also research that has shown that as many as over 100,000 women in Texas have tried to self uh, to end a pregnancy on their own without any medical assistance. So, Helene and Heidi, when we come back from the break, I want to go into that in a little further detail and also talk about how Roe has always been under attack, and this isn't something new. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for the afternoon, Michelle Jawando, and we'll be back in a bit. Leslie Marshall, the simple truth in a complicated world. 888-6-LESLIE.
Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for the afternoon, Michelle Jawando, and it's always great to be with you. I love hearing from you and engaging in the conversation. Feel free to give us a call, 888-6LESLIE, 888-653-7543. And actually, let's bring in David into this conversation. David is joining us from Phoenix. David, you still there? Yes, I am. Thanks Um, so much for calling in. Yeah, thank you uh, for having me. Um, Yeah, my point on the Supreme Court and abortions, uh, abortions are going to exist regardless of what the Supreme Court decides. That's been going on for decades, beyond decades. And what the Supreme Court decision or what will eventually happen is what the pro-lifers are trying to do they don't want to argue this point, but it's really, they just want to get rid of safe abortions. That's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. They, they, and it's a way of almost like, I, I take it as like misogyny, because they would want to put, they elevate, I mean, they actually view children in such high regard that they would, if a person, a woman would want to get rid of a child or an embryo in their stomach, uh, that they would rather have the, they would want to put a woman in a position where they would actually die to make them suffer, as opposed to them have the, you know, agency to decide what to do with their own body and go to an abortion clinic or a clinic to have it removed because they decide for whatever reason that they don't want the child any longer. Well, David, I I appreciate you giving us a call. And Helene or Heidi, do you want to jump in? I mean, I do think you know, connected to David's point, there seems to be, even from Roe became settled law of the land, we have always seen this kind of pushback um, from opponents who were trying to stop a constitutionally sound uh, procedure from taking place. This is Heidi. I I absolutely agree. And I think um, the most insidious part of the battle that's happening in 2016 is the language that the antis are using um, is this language around protecting women's health and pretending as if their efforts are um, pro-woman. Hmm. And we have to we have to be cognizant of the fact that this is about restricting one singular procedure that is safer than most procedures that people go into hospitals to have every day, that is a constitutional, constitutionally protected right, and is has been determined by the Supreme Court to be between a woman and her doctor. And so I think we need to make sure that people understand that. Just because they say that they're pro-woman and this is about protecting women's health, you cannot protect women's health by ensuring that they have less access to their constitutionally protected rights. I echo that so much, Heidi. And, you know, the one thing that is super clear is that both the American Medical Association and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the leading medical group for women, are firmly opposed to these laws. They say they're medically unnecessary, they don't help women, and, in fact, will harm them. And I thought one of the great parts about the argument last week really was the active questioning from the justices who really understood that. Um, Justice Breyer had a very long exchange with the the representative from the state of Texas, from the Solicitor General, saying, you know, basically, you're going to, 
abortion is so safe that the one woman out of however many hundreds of thousands that you may help is so far outweighed by closing all these providers and having women turn to their own means, which is what we're seeing and what we'll see more of, if they're left with no providers and no access. Well, one of the things I often spend a lot of time talking about here at CAP is kind of this notion about why courts matter. And unfortunately, until we have something really dramatic, like what we're dealing with now and this vacancy on the Supreme Court, most people don't often think about this kind of third branch of government. Um, But what I think has been particularly, and and to use your point, Heidi, um, insidious about kind of this anti-movement is ever since Roe was decided, you have seen a concerted conservative legal technique and I would say strategy to continue to erode the protections given under Roe through the courts. So whether it was Casey or seeing how numerous, numerous state legislatures have continually moved forward um, to kind of reduce kind of access and accessibility for women. Um, But you have seen this concerted legal movement to get us to where we are today. And I think that's something that we often don't hear about. Um, And and I'm just wondering why don't we hear more about it is because people don't pay attention to it. Are we not talking about it? Is there a shame and a stigma that we still haven't overcome when it comes to thinking about things around choice? You know, the last poll that I saw asked that question, why doesn't the average person know about all of these restrictions? And part of it, part of it is this, um, the messaging of the right. They've done a very good job of convincing people that restrictions protect women's health. And even people who identify as progressive say, oh, well, sure, you should widen the hallways if that means women are going to have the best health care. Sure, you should require doctors have admitting privileges, um, thinking that that will make women in those clinics safer. But what they don't realize is that, as you said, it's it's such a strategic effort to close down the clinics. And then I think you have a number of people who, like all of us, are watching the Republican um, debates who feel like that's what politics is all the time. And so they hear the term, they hear about the abortion, the abortion debates, and they hear about the back and forth between the um, pro-choice people and the anti-choice people. And they feel like if anyone is communicating with them about the issue, it's with an intense, um, it's with a purpose to manipulate them to one side or the other. So they stop listening. Mm. And mm. that has hurt us on the pro-woman side, those of us who really want to protect women's rights, women's autonomy, women's families, because our message, we have to work harder to get our message to penetrate the average person. And then, Helene, just where do we go from here? What should our listeners be paying attention to? What are you doing? What's Planned Parenthood? And I know there's a a great coalition of groups who are working on this from the Center for Reproductive Rights and NARAL, um, you know, us even here at CAP. And so there's a lot of energy. But what should our listeners be paying attention to over the next coming months? 
Well, I think that, that they should pay attention to this case and understand that what happens in this case is not likely to be limited to Texas. This, these sort of restrictions have been passed all over the country on this pretext of women's health, and that what happens in this case really could affect women's access to abortion um, throughout the country. It could embolden state legislatures. It could tie the hands of courts. And um, I thought that at the arguments, the United States, submitted a brief, the administration on the side of, of our side, on behalf of the Center for Reproductive Rights and Whole Women's Health. And so the Solicitor General of the U.S. argued, and for he had 10 minutes of the argument, and I thought his closing was, was really just sort of exactly what's at stake in this case. And he said, I think, therefore, that if you do find this law is upheld, what you will be saying is that this right really only exists in theory and not in fact going forward. And the commitments that this court made in Casey will not have been kept. So Casey is the case that upheld Roe in 1992 and affirmed that women do have this right. And so I think he was very effectively and powerfully saying to the court, if you uphold this law, you promised women in 1992 that they have this right, and that right will only exist in theory and not in fact for so many women. That's right. Joining us in for the last few hours, uh, last few minutes, we had Helene Krasnoff. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon, and welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host this afternoon, Michelle Jawando, joining you. And thank you so much for bearing with us as I'm getting over a cold, but nothing would stop me from talking about guns. Um, And so I'm really excited for our next segment. I want to hear from you, love hearing from you. So if you want to join in the conversation, give us a ring, 888-6-LESLIE. That number is 888. Eight six five three seven five four three. I'm really excited about this next segment because one, I'm a geek, um, and this has to do with SCOTUS, a Supreme Court justice who never speaks. A topic that, no matter what you're talking about, has people's passions that arise whenever you mention the word gun. Um, And then I have an incredibly smart and talented colleague who I get to work with and someone who I'm just meeting and I'm really excited about the great work. So joining us in studio, we have Chelsea Parsons, who's the Vice President of Guns and Crime Policy at CAP, and Rob Valente, Vice President for Public Policy at the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So great to have you both both in studio. It's always good to touch people, and I promise I will keep all my germs on this side <laughs> of the studio. Um, for for those who, who don't know, in the bathroom, when I met Rob, we gave the kind of peace hands up sign, but we didn't actually touch. So I kept my germs to myself. So Chelsea, you know, this uh, case, and I would love for you to kind of give our listeners a little bit of background on the Voisin case um, that has to do with kind of domestic abusers and kind of access to guns. And um, and then I want to turn to Rob, who was actually in the Supreme Court when we heard oral arguments and kind of get her reactions, particularly when we heard Justice Thomas voice um, chime in. So, Chelsea, you go first. Yeah, absolutely. So this case involves um, an interpretation of the federal law um, that 
bars people who have been convicted of a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence from being able to buy and possess guns. And this was a law um, that went into effect in um, 1998, and it's referred to as the Lautenberg Amendment. It's, uh, you know, a former Senator Frank Lautenberg um, uh, championed this. And, and what the federal law says is if you've been convicted of a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, um, you are prohibited from buying and possessing guns. And the, and the law defines misdemeanor crime of domestic violence um, as being uh, those crimes against certain um, uh, individuals in, in, in certain relationships that involves uh, the use or the threat of force. So the issue in the Voisin case um, is an individual who has been convicted of a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence. Um, it was therefore prohibited uh, from gun possession under federal law um, and committed what was charged with violating that law because he was found to be in possession of a gun. Um, and his argument is that his particular misdemeanor conviction shouldn't be gun prohibiting, shouldn't fall within the federal law um, because it was committed with the mental state of recklessness. Um, so he doesn't argue that he wasn't convicted of a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, and he doesn't argue actually that it wasn't um, a, a crime that involved uh, physical touching, because it did. But he argues that the mental state was recklessness, so he didn't really mean it, so therefore it shouldn't be gun prohibiting. And so that's really the issue at stake in this case. Um, and the reason that it's, I think, particularly dangerous, and, and I, I would love to hear Rob's point of view um, on this from the perspective of the domestic violence advocacy community, is really what it's trying to do is kind of parse out um, types of domestic violence that don't really count as much, right? Mm -hmm. It's trying to kind of, uh, you know, assign Your, My domestic levels. violence isn't as bad as yours. Right, because I didn't really mm -hmm. mean it. Right, right, and, right. And that's, and that's really what the argument is in this case, mm -hmm. um, in the context of, of gun possession. So, so, Rob, kind of what is your take? I mean, you've worked in the DV community for years and mm -hmm. um, have, have were, I'm, and I'm sure your organization was kind of involved even when Senator Lautenberg, who had the honor of working with um, when I was in the Senate, passed this amendment. Um, but the way that we're now kind of at this place where we're starting mm -hmm. to, in some ways, privilege certain types of kind of DV crimes mm -hmm. over others seems to be a pretty pernicious slip very slow. It certainly is. Um, I'm, I work for the domestic violence, National Domestic Violence Hotline. We get over 400,000 contacts a year, um, and it goes up every day, um, it just constantly increasing. And what we hear from people around firearms and domestic violence is that firearms are used as a tool of abuse. Why is this important? because abusers don't commit just one crime. It's very, it's a different kind of crime, and we taught, we submitted an amicus brief in the Castleman case, and we did in the Voisin case to explain this. Domestic violence is a pattern and conduct and history of abuse. So there are many things that go in to make that up, and you've got to look at the whole picture. One slap, which is what Mr. Voisin was charged with um, and convicted of, just is part of the picture, and even the facts of the case reference his extensive history of domestic violence. To us who work in the field, that tells us everything. He's done other things, and abusers do other things. And, and even if he'd never laid a finger, there are forms of torture around firearms that will damage somebody just as greatly. And I'm going to give you some examples that we have heard and no identifying details, but this is just stuff that the advocates come and tell me and say, what can we do? An abuser will 
buy a firearm. He'll leave the receipt on the table. And the, the survivor will contact us saying, I looked all over the house. I don't know where the gun is, but I know he bought it because he left the receipt there for me to see it. Mm. That's as abuse just as much as, as, somebody, touching. Mm-hmm, as, as anything you saw in the Ray Rice video. Mm-hmm. That person will never sleep well again. And so that's what we see. We call this coercive control. And if you're not aware that there's a whole pattern of activity like that, and that if you take one piece out of it, do one little snapshot out of that whole long movie of abuse, you're not you're not going to understand the story. So, Rob, you were at the Supreme Court on the day mm-hmm. of oral arguments. And, you know, I think for many of our listeners who may know, um, there was somewhat of a, almost a running tab that was kept of the amount of time when we last heard a question from the bench from Supreme Court Justice um, Thomas. And this was the first case in 10 years that he inquired during oral arguments. And so there was this great, obviously, there had to be the kind of conversation. Why was it this case? But I thought what was more interesting was the line of questioning uh, from Justice Thomas. And do you want to share with our, our listeners or Chelsea, share with our listeners what your thoughts were about the line of questioning on this case? Um, what we heard there was a question about whether or not the Second Amendment really allowed this. And, you know, I think he was speaking for Justice Scalia. I think one of the reasons why we heard from him at that moment was because Justice Scalia was the one who always raised that line of argument, and he did not want to let that drop. But, you know, even as Justice Scalia said in the Heller case, um, at, the, at the end of that very long opinion, the federal law contains many good statutes that address firearms, and there's no reason to question any of them at this time. And I think one of the things that stood out to me about the line of questioning from Justice Thomas was that he really was going beyond the scope of the issue presented in this Mm -hmm. case. Um, And his questioning really did evidence a... um, a suspicion of the entire category of misdemeanor crimes of domestic violence as being gun prohibiting. Um, And that's, you know, I think when we first saw this case come up um, on the docket, it, it was one that was concerning because of the arguments being raised, but it was one that we felt fairly confident the court would rule appropriately on in light of um, the most recent decision in this area last Mm -hmm. term in Castleman. But Justice Thomas's line of questioning, um, you know, it, it presented, it, it con- concerned me in terms of where his thinking is on um, what have been almost two decades now of established federal law. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what and what he missed was that, again, it's understanding domestic violence. The reason why the misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, which is the only misdemeanor crime that regulates, that causes a prohibitor like this, is because of the uh, the story that I told you before about the, the pattern. pattern and history of mm-hmm. abuse, that we have to understand that there are some acts that look like they're reckless or look small, but they're really part of a bigger picture. There's a special reason for that, and he was ignoring that in that line of questioning. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm in studio with Rob and Chelsea. When we come back, we'll have the results of our poll on whether or not those convicted of domestic violence should be allowed to own guns. Chelsea and Rob will stay with us. 
and we would love to hear from you. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for the afternoon, Michelle Jawando, and we'll be back in a bit. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for this afternoon. This is Michelle Jawando. And I love hearing from you. If you want to join in the conversation on Twitter, you can follow at Michelle Jawando or at Sally Leslie Marshall. And if you want to give us a call, please 888-6LESLIE, 888-653-7543. I'm lucky enough to be joined for the half hour with Chelsea Parsons, Vice President of Crime and Gun Policy at the Center for American Progress, and Rob Valente, who's the Vice President for Public Policy at the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Thank you again, ladies, for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, you know, before we went to the break, we sent out a poll on uh, lesliemarshall.com and if you checked out and the question that we posed is should someone who's been convicted of domestic violence be allowed to own guns 85% of our listeners who participated in the poll said no 3% said yes 12% said undecided so it was a pretty powerful kind of breakdown that most people agree with us Uh, and like this is kind of where we're going and it's, it's interesting as I kind of put it in the context of even the fact that today is International Women's Day. And so much we say is often done to kind of protect women and daughters and the way that historically we think about women in our society. But when we have the opportunity to really protect women, whether it's talking about actually protecting their health, so when you're dealing with the case like Whole Women's Health in Texas, where you're actually shutting down health care as opposed to opening access, or in this situation where you're actually talking about opening up access for those who've been convicted of abuse, it seems to kind of be a a farce when we talk about how do we really protect women in our country. Yeah, and what I think is interesting about the the poll that you sent out is that that tracks exactly with national polling on this issue, and it tracks exactly with the trends that we've seen um, in state legislatures over the last three years. Um, So you have widespread, broad, bipartisan support for keeping guns out of the hands of domestic abusers. Um, And what we've seen in the state level is over the last, since uh, the beginning of 2013, you've seen um, roughly 20 states have actually strengthened their laws um, with respect to domestic abusers and keeping guns out of the hands of domestic abusers. And this has been not just states like our, you know, New York State or California. This is Louisiana has done this. New Hampshire has done this. Um, and so this, you know, the the notion that domestic abusers should not have access to firearms is frankly not a controversial one, um, except for this really strange case that has made its way all the way to the Supreme Court. 
And I would agree with that. And I think that one of the things that the states have going for them that maybe the feds haven't seen yet is really seeing this stuff up close. The states are where the prosecutions really take place in these cases, and they've seen some of the most gruesome pieces of this. I know Senator Leahy often tells the story of one of his first um, crime scenes when he was a prosecutor and going into a crime scene where a woman had been shot by her husband and what it, it did to him as a young man and a young prosecutor. And obviously that's never left him. That's what they see. I mean, to give you a little picture of it, we conducted a survey on the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Um, after callers received the help that they need, we asked them if they'd participate in this survey. And of those who said that, you know, yes, there were firearms in their home, 22% um, said that their partner had threatened to use the firearms to hurt themselves, their intimate partner, their children, family members, friends, and even pets. And 67% believed that their partner was capable of killing them with that firearm, which is absolutely chilling. So one of the things, Rob, that I wanted to mention is that you have been engaged in a partnership with the NFL. Mm -hmm. And in your earlier comments, we talked about the Ray Rice incident. Mm -hmm. But what I thought was really important about this moment and some of your activity mm -hmm. is that the NFL has been a, a very aggressive partner in working on this. And this is something, as you mentioned, Chelsea, is like a bipartisan concern. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit about that partnership, why you think it's important that we get more voices of all kinds to really get engaged in this conversation? Well, of course, the NFL really has a huge impact on what people think and feel. It's a big thing. Everyone has a Super Bowl party. Um, people have their favorite teams, and they you know, identify themselves in that way. It's a powerful icon in, in our culture. And to have that, the power of that icon speaking you know, positively um, about support for victims of domestic violence is incredible. The PSA that they had last year and this year on the Super Bowl certainly has you know, helped reach out to all kinds of folks. They have been supporters of the National Domestic Violence Hotline. They've supported sexual violence groups and rape crisis centers. They've been doing a lot of work and doing a lot of work internally to educate themselves around this. I can't say enough about what that means. And when you think about what Chelsea just said, I think it's really an important irony. The NFL is taking such great steps, yet we have this case yep. that's throwing us back in time. So what's why can't why aren't they moving along with the rest of us? And Chelsea, I I always want to have you on because there's always so much to talk about. But as we get ready to kind of close this segment, what should our listeners be paying attention to watching this case over the next few months? So I think I, I think the Supreme Court precedent on this issue, on Second Amendment issues, on this particular federal law, does suggest that the court will rule um, in favor of keeping guns out of the hands of abusers. And so I think that we are probably in good shape for that. I think that um, this... Uh, uh, highlighting this connection between gun violence and domestic violence is um, a really important issue, and it's one that has resonance at every level, local, state, and federal. That's Amen. Great. Well, Rob and Chelsea, you know, I'll have to have you both back again. You were wonderful. And for those who want to get learn more about the hotline? www.thehotline.org. Or for our younger listeners, 
loveisrespect.org. Oh, I love that. Love is respect. And on International Women's Day, love yourself just a little bit more. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. This is Michelle Jawando, your guest host. I want to thank my guests in the studio, Rob Valente, Vice President for Public Policy, and Chelsea Parsons, Vice President of Guns and Crime Policy at CAP. Thanks so much. We'll be back after the break. afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for the afternoon, Michelle Jawando, and you've reached the halfway mark with us, and I so appreciate you being here. If you want to join in the conversation, please give us a call, 888-6LESLIE, or give us a ring at 888-653-7543. Follow the conversation online on Twitter, at Leslie Marshall, or at Michelle Jawando. I'm really, really excited about our next segment. Um, First off, because I know these two guys and some of the great work that they're doing. But before I get into that, I got to add some context. So this past weekend had an opportunity to spend some time with some of my closest girlfriends from college. And and when you're in these conversations, you inevitably talk about everything, life and motherhood and working. And um, But we were in a southern city that will remain nameless. Um, and the stark racial both experiences, um, some good, some bad, but some of the stark racial opportunities for people in this particular city it was so apparent that at times you felt the palpable difference in the air. Um, And it was so difficult in some ways to kind of articulate for us as outsiders being in the midst of the city. And I think in some ways, when we think about mass incarceration and the legacy of slavery in this country, those stark differences, the way that the criminal justice system in this country has been performed um, with black and brown bodies is so stark that it, it just gave me an opportunity and a, and a window that I really wanted to talk and explore with our guests and our listeners um, and you great audience members today. And so Saying all that, I am happy to bring into this conversation Matt Haney, who is the director of policy of Cut of the Cut Fifty Initiative at DreamCourse, and Shaka Senor, author of Writing My Wrongs, who's on here to talk about his new book and criminal justice reform. Hey guys. Hey. <laughs> Hey, how's it going? How you doing, Shaka? So, so Shaka, I wanna I wanna start with you because the last time we saw each other was on Summit at Sea, 
Um, and you were really able to kind of give in an unvarnished way kind of your real personal testimony and story. Um, and I was excited. I didn't even know you didn't even talk about it. You were way too shy and humble with it. Um, <laughs> talk about this book that you have coming out. And so tell our listeners a little bit about your book and about your story. Uh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I am super excited uh, writing my, with my new memoir, Writing My Wrongs. And it's really a story that covers my journey from, you know, a, a young kid who grew up in an abusive household, having to run away uh, at the age of 13 or 14 and being vulnerable in that space. I got seduced into uh, drug trafficking and started selling crack cocaine and experienced all the horrors that come with that culture from uh, being addicted to it myself at the age of 14 to having you know, a childhood friend murdered, um, beaten, robbed. And, you know, then it was from that point to being shot multiple times when I turned 17 years old. And 16 months later, it really talks about what happened uh, when I tragically uh, shot and caused the man's death and was sent to prison and uh, sentenced to 17 to 40 years in prison. And so it really talks about my journey on the inside and, you know, going from that bitter confused, angry young man to evolving and, and changing and turning my life around and coming out on the other side of all that to come back to the community and add real value. Shaka's for a lot of our listeners, they are often kind of, they have this idea about what prison is, but aren't really aware that so many of our brothers and our sisters and our mothers and our fathers will have some type of interaction with the system. So one in three of our Americans walking around right now have a criminal record. And so this kind of idea that it's just those people over there versus all of us is, 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 is a crazy idea because it is a, because it's not real, but your book, it seems like tries to pierce through that veil and make it real for people. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important when we look at, you know, how many American citizens have had some type of interaction with the judicial system and how many are currently suffering the collateral consequences of those interactions from, you know, being unemployed to not being able to find housing and really just getting down to, to the core of what's really, you know, a cornerstone of any civilized country, which is redemption, you know, and, and second chances. And, you know, we live in a society where our prison system is very punitive. It's not designed for men and women to transform them li their lives uh, or to redeem themselves. So anybody who is able to make it out of that environment with, with any bit of the, you know, amount of their humanity intact uh, is really just a testament to the hard work that they're willing to put in. And what I want to do is really shift the culture to where we realize that these are still our brothers and sisters. These are still men and women who are returning to our community. Um, and we have to decide what kind of men and women we want to return. Do we want healthy human beings who have, you know, kind of, you know, rethought some of the things in their past? Or do we want men and women who are coming out broke, more broken than they went in? And this is really what Writing My Wrongs is about. It's like how do we, you know, reestablish those core principles and values that, you know, we all hold dear to us, which is, you know, giving people second chances and, you know, taking into account that, all of us are, are, are capable of making a poor decision, but we shouldn't be held 
hostage to that for the rest of our lives. And Matt, I want to bring you into this conversation because this is essentially your work at Cut 50. Can you tell our listeners who may not be as familiar with, first off, how amazing you are um, just as an individual, but also the great work and the needed work of Cut 50? Absolutely, and, and thank thank you so much for having us on, and uh, it's especially an honor to be on with, with Shaka, a um, good friend of mine and colleague on uh, what is a very, very big day for him. Uh, I think it was mentioned a bit, but this is actually the release day, uh, official release day of his book. So, oh, wow, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. so it's a special day for him, and uh, it's wonderful to be on the phone with you and to be able mm-hmm. to congratulate him as well. Mm-hmm. Um so uh, Cut 50 is an initiative that is working to cut the prison population by 50% uh, over 10 years. Uh, and as we know, we have over 2 million Americans who are currently incarcerated. Uh, it's a number that has grown astronomically over the past few decades. Uh, and we think it's time that we start to move uh, very rapidly in the other direction. Um, we have seen a number of states who have started to implement reforms to their justice system, but we know that we have so much further to go. Uh, there are, uh, you know, not just uh, the, the kind of situation um, where, where people are going in for nonviolent crimes and drug crimes, which get a lot of attention, but we've really just started, as Shaka talked about, uh, giving up on people, uh, locking them up in a system that tends to create more problems than it solves um, for decades on end. Um, really disconnected from what's best for public safety and what's best for our community. Uh, and the result has been, has been well documented, billions of dollars that we spend as a nation on this, uh, but much, much deeper impact on communities, on families, um, on children who are separated from their loved ones. Uh, and so as Cut 50, what we're doing is we're trying to shine a light on solutions and amplify those solutions so that our political leaders our institutions actually address them and create a system that is humane, compassionate, and solves problems for individuals and communities rather than creates them. Uh, so that's the work that we're, we've been doing. Uh, I've been a co-founder of Cup 50 along with Van Jones and Jessica Jackson and Shaka Singor, and um, we have been working to try to uh, first get the president and Congress to do something about this so that they can take a first step to reverse the the, the way in which the federal justice system has really been, in many ways, leading uh, the, the mass incarceration problem uh, and start to address that first. Uh, and, and so we've been working a lot in federal legislation that I can talk a bit about. Uh, so so we're, we're, we're excited about the fact that people are talking about this issue, that presidential candidates are talking about this issue, and they're actually talking about solutions, not just how they can make it worse, which is, unfortunately has been something that political leaders in both political parties uh, have been responsible for to get us to where we are today. So, Matt and Shaka, when we come back after the break, I want to talk a little bit about of where things are in Congress and where you see them going over the next few months. And then, Shaka, I really want you to speak to a piece that doesn't necessarily always come out in these conversations. But you, as you talk about your book, really talk about child abuse and how that affected you. And I really want our listeners to hear that piece of your story. So if you are just tuning in, this is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for the afternoon, Michelle Jawando. You're listening to Matt Haney and Shaka Senor. When we come back from the break, we'd love to hear from you. 888-6-LESLIE. This is The Leslie Marshall Show. 
Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. And welcome back. You're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is your guest host for the afternoon, Michelle Jawando. And it's always a pleasure to be with you and to have our great listeners who are from all over and always have great questions and answers and engage in the conversation. And we so appreciate having you. If you want to chime in, give us a call, 888-6-LESLIE, or follow us at at the Leslie Marshall Show, or you can give me follow me on Twitter at Michelle Jawando. I'm happy to have as a part of this segment Matt Haney, who's the director of policy of the Cut 50 Initiative, and Shaka Senior, who is the new author of Writing My Wrongs. But before I go back to Matt and Shaka, I want to bring in because we have a caller, Michael, who's on the line from the Bronx. Michael, hello, Michelle. Hi, how are you? I'm doing okay. Hello to your guests. Um, with, this, this, with this discussion of criminal justice reform, for me, the biggest issues, and I'm going to guess that you probably touched base in your book, is the fact that you have innocent people wrongly convicted of crimes, and they really pretty much have been law-abiding, always have been, but they're thrown into the system for political purposes or even just to um, keep their mouth shut or what have you. <clears throat> and at the same time, the double standards that have been going on, largely from the right. The, the fact that you got gun laws in which if somebody on the right has a gun, it's a Second Amendment right. If somebody on the left, especially a person of color, has a gun, it's assumed to be criminal possession of a weapon. The same thing with the First Amendment. It's... Um, some on the right exercising First Amendment rights, but some on the left is disorderly conduct, and the beat keeps going on. At the same time, these same people on the right always downplay or dismiss um, any kind of government or police abuse. And, you know, when the OJ case came about 20 years ago, which ironically there's a movie on about it right now, and some of these um, news media keep recapping the case, they're still pointing the finger to give the prosecution and the police a big-time break and ignoring the other leads that pretty much came up in the case that nobody's following up on. So I wonder if you touch base on any of these issues as to the fact that there are those that shouldn't be in prison and then those, especially on the right, that encourage violence that encourage these kind of hate, um, the hateful mongering and racial um, fear mongering. And, and Michael, I, we so we so appreciate your question, and I think Shaka, you know, would love for you to speak to what you saw in 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 prison, and even just kind of the double standard, and even now as you tell your story as a as a writer and a speaker and an author, um, how how you deal with that real double standard in the way our justice system treats um, people of color versus our white brothers and sisters. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think as, as a writer, it's been extremely important for me to really highlight the contradictions that exist uh, when you look at the racial disparities in sentencing, uh, length of sentences served, and then resources available upon release. Uh, and it's just an unfortunate reality um, that, you know, on, on, a, on a, the, the bad end of that is, is for the most part, uh, you know, black people, um, black and brown folks. Um, and so I just think it's important that, that we start really looking at it in an honest way and say to ourselves that if we're going to be one community, one nation, one country, that we have to be honest about how people have been treated. Uh, but a lot of that responsibility also falls on everyday citizen in terms of us not ignoring uh, the reality that, you know, there are these racial disparities. You know, and I've started to see a shift in that way uh, through the work that, that Matt and I have been able to do along with the rest of our colleagues, because now we're making this, this, this work so available, so accessible in ways that have never happened uh, in our country's history. So, you know, that's a great point because, Matt, the last time we saw each other was kind of at a conference on Capitol Hill, where which was this great bipartisan coming together, talking about these issues. So it seems like we're closer than we were before, but it still feels really far away. Yeah, no, I mean, we're talking a lot about it. Uh, there's a lot of convenings and there's a lot of, you know, fortunately people in the media and presidential candidates and all of that. But, you know, we know that we have a really long way to go uh, to actually address the deep systemic issues here. You know, Michael talked about uh, in his question the racial disproportionality. You know, we, we it's been estimated that if we address the racial disparities alone, we could cut the prison population in half. You know, if we actually treated people equally and fairly, uh, rather than locking some people up um, from black and brown communities in much greater rates for the same um, offenses or same same incidents, uh, uh, we would actually have a justice system that looked incredibly different than what we have now. And we know that even what's on the table, you know, the, the step that we want to see in the federal system alone, which accounts for about 10% of the prison population nationally, uh, would reduce some of the mandatories, would allow some folks to get good time credits so that they didn't serve as long as if they, if they participate in rehabilitation and do a number of other good things. But even that, it would just be a small first step to get us to where we need to be, which is to have a justice system that doesn't lock up more people than anyone in the world and uh, devastate communities in the way it does, especially black and brown communities. So there's a long way to go. Uh, there's a lot of legislation that needs to be passed, and unfortunately, even the obvious stuff, the small stuff, we have a challenge in getting through. And so, Shaka, what do you want particularly young people to take away from your book? Uh, the biggest takeaway I want for young people is to understand that a 30-second decision can cost you the rest of your life, if not all of your life, in prison. Uh, but also that, there are, that we have choices, you know, and I made some poor choices based on some, you know, uh, some of the things I experienced in my life. And I had to deal with those consequences, and they're not easy consequences to deal with. And so I always just caution the young men and, and, and women in my community and communities throughout the nation as I travel across, you know, speaking, to really think about what they really want their life to look like 10 years, 15, 20 years from now. Because those prison sentences are serious. And as Matt said, we're working to change a lot of things, but as they currently exist, mandatory minimums are real. Um, and once you get trapped in the system, it's so hard to get out, and it's so hard to turn your life around. Uh, and oftentimes, most people don't have the level of support to, to get back on, on their feet. So 
you know, think about the decisions you make before you make them and, and really value your freedom because it's, it's one of the most precious gifts we have. And, Matt, how can people get involved in your movement and what I would only even want to say campaign, I want to say the movement that Cut 50 is a part of? Yeah, well, they can uh, they can go to beyondprisons.org uh, and, and definitely buy, buy Shaka's book and sign up to get more information from us. Uh, we've also got a campaign called Justice Reform Now where we're working to get a billion signatures calling for uh, comprehensive justice reform at the federal level. It's something that is being led uh, in partnership with Alicia Keys and a number of other uh, names that I'm sure people have heard of. Uh, and they can sign up there uh, at uh, justicereformnow.org. So, um, you know, th- there are a lot of ways to get in touch with us. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. And uh, as, you, as you mentioned, uh, th- there's a lot of talk, but we want to see action. And I think that the American people and voters and, and everyone else in the country is saying, all right, there's broad agreement on this. We know it's a huge problem. Now let's see our leaders actually take action. So um, anybody who agrees with that and wants to support us, they can look up Cut50BeyondPrisons.org and, uh, and join us. Well, it has been an honor and a privilege to have Shaka and Matt join us for the last half hour. If you want to get involved and get engaged, Go check out this amazing book, Writing My Wrongs. Please follow the Cut 50 initiative, and we'll be back in a bit. I'm your guest host for the afternoon, Michelle Jawando. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon, and welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host this wonderful Monday. No, it's Tuesday afternoon. Um, I'm your guest host, Michelle Jawando, and it has been a great two hours, and we've got one more to go. And you know I could not have a day with you, you amazing listeners, without talking about two topics that I love to discuss, money and politics and our elections and kind of where we are. So I'm excited to get into this next segment, and I know we have a few callers who are waiting. If you want to join in in the conversation, give us a call, 888-6LESLIE, and that number is 888-653-7543. You can follow along on Twitter, at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle Jawando. So joining us in studio and on the phone, we have Adam Leos, who is the Council and Senior Advisor of Policy and Outreach for Demos. And in studio, we have Billy Corrier, who is the Director of Research uh, for Legal Progress here at the Center for American Progress. Billy and Adam, thanks so much. Thank you. Hi, great to be with you. Thanks so much for being here. And Adam, you know, I, my friend, um, until I got a little sick, was probably going to be joining you um, this uh, today and I think tomorrow at Common Cause for this great democracy conference. Um, And why don't you go ahead and tell listeners um, a little bit about what this conference is about and a little bit about your background and the work that you're doing at Demos. Sure. Um, Appreciate that. So, Yes, I'm speaking to you all today from Washington, D.C., at a conference called uh, the Blueprint for a Great Democracy Conference, put on by Common Cause. And the basic point is to 
outline some of the uh, opportunities and challenges that we have and face with our democracy and what some of what are some of the structural reforms we need to make to uh, really realize uh, our vision of having a democracy that's truly uh, open and inclusive for everyone and how that connects with some of the uh, pressing issues that we're facing as a nation. And so we're talking about uh, things like the role of big money in politics, uh, the role of uh, drawing district lines, what happens when politicians choose their voters instead of voters choosing their politicians, talking about the state of voting rights in the wake of the Supreme Court gutting the Voting Rights Act and the uh, pressing need to push forward for affirmative uh, voting rights across the country, and then connecting that to uh, economic inequality. As uh, I'm sure listeners know, we've you know now had a recovery in which the top 1% have essentially gotten back all the economic gains since the Great Recession. Uh, and so we have pressing economic inequality. And of course, race is now uh, front and center in our national conversation with uh, police brutality and racial inequity continuing, and talking about how you can't really address these challenges to our democracy without having a frank conversation about the role of race and how race has been used very strategically by some elements of our political class to divide us and prevent us from uh, pursuing our collective interests together. That's right. And Billy, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about some of your work in connecting kind of the rise of money and politics with where we see things moving in a in a context that we don't often hear about, which is kind of judicial elections. Yeah, that's right, Michelle. I mean, one thing that I heard um, at the conference this morning was that, you know, a lot of folks, when they think about money and politics, they think about the presidential election because that's um, all over the media right now. Um, but the fact is that um, you know pe- people say that money doesn't matter in the presidential election because Jeb Bush uh, is already out of the race and he had the most money. But one thing I, I've heard is that the further down the ballot you go, the more the money matters. Um, and that's because the uh, candidates that are down ballot get less media attention. They're less well-known. Everyone knows Donald Trump now, um, for better or for worse. Um, <laughs> so what we really see in judicial elections is that money can have a really big impact, um, especially in, sta- in non-partisan states with nonpartisan judicial elections where – Voters don't even have the R or D beside the candidate's name to go on. Um, and in that case, it, it kind of depends on name recognition. Um, and in that case, you know, if, uh, if an outside group comes into a judicial election and spends a ton of money, um, that can really have a big impact. Um, right now, um, already in 2016, we've had uh, an Arkansas Supreme Court election that was dominated for the first time by over a million dollars in spending from uh, groups based in Washington, D.C., um, so they came into Arkansas, spent uh, an unprecedented amount of money, and managed to elect the candidates that they preferred um, to the Arkansas Supreme Court. And uh, next month, uh, voters in Wisconsin will be going to the polls to elect um, a justice to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And we've already seen um, a dark money group called the Alliance, Wisconsin Alliance for Reform come in and spend a ton of money in the primary, and they plan to spend a ton of money in the general, it looks like, as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge problem when it comes to our state courts because most state judges are elected and we're seeing these problems pop up uh, in more and more states uh, with every election cycle. So for our listeners, this is Michelle Jawando. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Some of our listeners who, who are familiar, you know that I, uh, I am many things, but right now I am also the wife of a congressional <laughs> candidate who is running for office. Um, and when you talk about – hi, Will Jawando – um, and so when you talk about the role of money in politics and your point, Billy, about um, particularly down ballot, the role that money plays, it is insurmountable 
the kind of thresholds that people, ordinary people, have to overcome in order to run for office. And Adam, I know you've written recently even about what's called the wealth primary and how that disproportionately affects candidates of color, um, women, and others, because we have essentially created a system where unless you're really wealthy or you have some type of access to people who are wealthy, and we know disproportionately women and people of color don't have those same levels of access, we're saying you can't even run for office and be a viable candidate. Exactly. And really what money is fundamentally is a barrier to entry for uh, anyone who wants to get into the game, and especially, as you said, that falls more heavily on women and people of color. Um, and, you know, we see this at, at every level of government. I know, you know, your husband is running for House right now, U.S. House. Um, one, if, you, if you were to run for Senate, so, you know, the person who's running the, the, the House is being vacated by someone who's running for the U.S. Senate. Uh, something that I found shocking in some of our recent research is that for folks who are running for U.S. Senate, in order to keep pace with the median Senate winner uh, in uh, 2014, um, someone has to raise $3,300 every single day for six years. So not just starting in the last year or two (laughs) when the Senate, but every single day for the entire term of a U.S. senator, you have to raise $3,300. And And what does that get you? Yeah, the natural question is, where am I going to get that money and who am I going to turn to in order to be able to raise that money day in and day out? And as I'm sure, you know, Will is experiencing, that's a lot of call time. And it's also spending a lot of time with a very narrow segment of folks that we refer to as the donor class, mm-hmm. right? And one of the things that's so important about the way that money skews policy in this country is that there's lots of studies that have shown, especially recently, that folks in the donor class who are very wealthy simply don't see the nation's problems and opportunities in the same way as the rest of us. They have very different views, especially when it comes to core economic views, like, for example, whether we should have a strong minimum wage, whether the government should ensure that everyone can afford to go to college without racking up incredible debt. These kinds of core issues, the the very wealthy just are not as, as, as economically progressive as the rest of the country. And so when you have candidates who are constantly dialing for dollars and hearing a very skewed perception of what the country looks like, first of all, a bunch of them are filtered out, right? If you don't have access or if you don't have positions that align with what I refer to sometimes as the gatekeeper class as well, so they're the donor class, but they're also functioning as a gatekeeper class. And if you don't have those relationships or policies that align, you can get filtered out. But even those that do end up winning have their views sort of subtly adjusted by all these conversations, and we end up with folks who are representing and, be, and responsive to that donor class more so than the rest of us. And then, you know, I think there's a clear racial dynamic and systemic racism built into our money and politics system. As you mentioned, the donor class is very white, um, and candidates of whatever color who are running or whatever race are appealing to this donor class. But then beyond that, um, because of centuries of you know, historic racism, there's not the same wealth in the African-American community, the Latino community. And so when candidates of color are looking around for that $3,300, um, a day, they're having more trouble finding it. And so one study of state legislative races found that candidates of color raise about half of their white counterparts when they do run for office. And the South, is even, it was even worse. It was 64% less money. So definitely some barriers that fall more heavily on women and candidates of color. So 
in studio, Billy Courier, Adam Leos from Demos, Dave from California, and Rod from New Mexico. I'm going to get you in on this conversation when we come back after the break. We're talking money and politics, our elections, where we go from here, people. I mean, something's got to give. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for the afternoon, Michelle Jawando. We'll be back right after the break. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back, and you're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host this afternoon, Michelle Jawando, and it's been great being with you for the last few hours. In studio, Billy Courier, Director of Research, Center for American Progress, and on the phone we have Adam Leos, who is Counsel and Senior Advisor at Demos. So I actually want to bring in some voices from our callers. So Dave from California, are you still there? Love to take your question. I am here, Michelle, and I do believe that you and your husband are just about to get to see up close and personal how really bad the problem that you're speaking of is. <laughs> uh, you know, we like to believe that we're electing officials, candidates for Congress and such, that are going to be in a position to oversee that we have an honest government where the officials are there to protect and represent the interests of the people, that's not going to be the case. It is now crooked corporations wanting to maximize their profits, wanting to find ways to cheat, to put more in and take, you know, insurance companies that want to pay out as little as possible and pocket as much money as possible, crooked banks that want to rip off their customers. All of them want to pay candidates or office to look the other way and allow this to go on. They don't want to have in power honest people. we got one shot coming at us right now. We've got one honest candidate that's running in the midst of all this, amazing as it may seem, and he's actually, I guess, got a chance right now. But we have, look at the military. How much money goes into our military that ends up in the pocket of corrupt contractors? Here. You you are hitting the nail on the head on so many different pieces, my friend. And, you know, uh, to, to put it in context, when they did a Washington Post story on my husband's campaign, there are three other millionaires. There's three millionaires. I'm not in the millionaire class. Let me just be very clear. There are three millionaires in his race, and we're the only candidate that has loans, student loans. So you wonder... Can these people who purport to want to represent people, can they understand what it's like to deal with the pressures of loans when they don't know what that's like to have? And Billy, you know, you were the co-author on a report um, with another wonderful author by the name Mm -hmm. of Michelle Jawander earlier (laughs) in the year where you talked about how money continues to close the pool of people who are eligible to participate. Tell our listeners a little bit about that. Well, yeah, Michelle, we we did this report um, called More Money, More Problems, and it basically looked at the ways that money in judicial elections impacted diversity on the bench. 
Um, and what we found uh, was that in so many states across the country, when we saw the amount of money coming into these state Supreme Court elections, we saw a loss of diversity on the bench. Um, because for a lot of the reasons that Adam mentioned earlier, um, a lot of diverse candidates don't have access to the same kinds of networks as white candidates um, for a lot of historical uh, reasons. Um, and it was uh, it was pretty alarming. I mean, we saw instances of uh, candidates uh, who you know were elected based on the sound of their last name. Wow. Um, candidates in Texas who lost their seats on the bench because they had a Latino last name. Um, and they were very qualified candidates. They had the backing of the Republican establishment, and they lost to much less qualified challengers. Um, so money does play a huge role. Um, it's very unfortunate, and I think that, uh, you know, like the caller says, it really impacts what our uh, policymakers' priorities are. We've got all this money going into places like the military, and, uh, you know, at the same time, Congress hasn't really done much to help uh, working-class and middle-class Americans who have been struggling uh, since the Great Recession. And let me bring in Rod. Rod from New Jersey, are you still on the line? And Dave, thanks so much for your call. Rod? Uh, yes, I'm here. Um, yes, I want to bring up uh, a couple things here. Um, uh, our country was founded. You know, our guiding principles is that everyone has the right to vote. And we are all equal regardless of our station, be it, uh, whether we're, we're some minority or economic status or our sex or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, we are all equal under the law, and we have passed amendments and added to the Constitution and uh, have passed many laws to uh, ensure that. And McCutcheon and Citizens United and a number of other horrible decisions by the last three Supreme Courts who were also were appointed, uh, you know, most of the uh, conservative majorities were appointed by uh, Nixon, Reagan, and the two Bushes. Uh, one of which probably shouldn't have been in the uh, office in the first place. Um, you know, uh, those all came about. Um, you know, you know, basically what we do now is you know that's tilted the uh, field, and we basically have the uh, choice now. You know, do we want to be a democracy or a plutocracy? And I happen to think that we're ninety percent of the way toward a plutocracy or some form of autocracy. Wow, that's such a powerful statement. Adam, what do you say to callers like Rod? Because I think a lot of people feel like they feel that frustration and want to see what do they need to do to take our democracy back? Sure. Well, I think, you know, Rod hit, hit a lot of things on the head. And I think, you know, the, the Supreme Court, as he points out, has been a real barrier to, uh, to change. And in fact, uh, has really taken away and usurped the power of we the people to protect our democracy with common sense protections against big money. And that's, you know, the cases he mentioned. Actually, this year is the 40th anniversary of a case called Buckley v. Vallejo, which many fewer people have heard of than Citizens United, but actually started us off on this wrong path. And one thing that's very important that, that Rod mentioned is that the principle of American democracy is one person, one vote, right? We all sit at the political table as equals. Well, in addition to taking a whole set of tools out of our toolbox to protect our democracy, like spending limits and low contribution limits and, and uh, uh, bans on corporate spending, this, the, the other thing to understand that's important about the Supreme Court is why they've done that and how they've done that. And one of the things that's most absurd is that the court has actually said that we the people are not allowed to pass a law for the purpose of law limiting big money, for the purpose of bringing that 
principle of political equality, of equal voice in the political process to life, uh, and, and limiting the ability of the wealthy to drown out the rest of our voices. The Supreme Court has actually said we're not allowed to do that. And so getting to your question of what can we do about it, one thing is that we need to transform the court's approach so that um, it's clear that the, the Constitution clearly gives we the people the power to protect our democracy. That's right. We, we need to transform the court's approach on that front. All right, and listening, if you are just tuning in, Adam Leos from Demos will have to bring you back. Billy, we're going to bring you back. This is The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be back right in a bit. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. I am your guest host, bringing you in for the final half an hour. Michelle Jawando, you want to stay tuned in the conversation? Follow us at the Leslie Marshall Show or at Michelle Jawando. If you want to give us a call, 888-6LESLIE, 888-653-7543. Joining us in studio, because you know I could not close out the show without talking about the 2016 elections, also known as the comedy of errors in some ways. But in studio, we have Brenton Strong, who is the Managing Director for Communications at the Center for American Progress Action Fund, and Igor Volsky, who's the Deputy Director for the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Hey, guys. Good afternoon. How's it going? Thanks so much for being here. You should say thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, you know. We'll share this good. Yeah. So you I know. told you guys, everybody's like, keep your germs on this side of the table <laughs> and we'll be fine, right? Um, so just what is going on? We're, we're voting. It's a Tuesday. We're like voting. This is like a big day, right? I mean, if it's Tuesday, right? It's, 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 a, it's, a, prim- it's a primary. It's a primary we're, day. we're on a good streak, actually. Super Tuesday and then... Then this Tuesday, then we're calling, they're calling next week Super Duper Tuesday is what is what March fifteenth is supposed to be. I, yeah, I, I, there's the, no the, creativity. This, so just, we're having some votes tonight. Yes. It's Michigan, <laughs> Mississippi for both parties, and then for the Republicans, Hawaii and Idaho. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I don't think anybody expects the Democrats to win Idaho in in November. So I'm not sure we're going to glean too much from that from that primary. But it, Michigan is the is the big one tonight. Michigan yeah. is a big prize for both parties. Um, whoever can come out of that on top on the Democratic is going to look really good mm-hmm. going into next week in probably kind of some deciding states. And then the Republican ones, the real open question. So Donald Trump looks like he's probably going to win. But what happens to John Kasich? Because John Kasich, after he did so well in New Hampshire, said, I'm going to plant my flag in Michigan. Mm-hmm. He did that. And if he finishes third or fourth in his neighboring state, that opens up a lot of questions about whether or not he stays in this race into Ohio next week. Mm-hmm. Or does he go in? Because if he, if he can't get ahead in Michigan today, It'd be pretty bad for a sitting governor to embarrass themselves in her home state. And, Michelle, we got to wrap this up quickly because Ben and I are jumping on a plane to go to Hawaii to supervise that <laughs> oh, vote okay. All right, that's just to, to make sure uh, there's no irregularities. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, look, for, for Kasich, they've been saying for a long time, once we get to the western states, that's our real power. Right. So if he doesn't do well, he is in trouble. For Trump, though, he had a bit of a kind of a slippage yeah. over the weekend yeah. where he wasn't 
wasn't the top vote getter, and people started to think, is this guy stoppable? So he has to have a good showing tonight, and he has to have a great showing on the 15th if he wins Ohio, and if he wins Florida, this thing is over. He's Does really Trump unstoppable. Does really want to be president? You know, sometimes I feel like he's up there, and the people are screaming, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I just wanted to sell more shirts. And then he's like, oh, but I'm really winning. You know, I'm not necessarily sure I believe that the guy really wants to be president. The ego. I think the ego has to be fed, right, through the presidency. Yeah, you know what? Two months ago, Michelle, I would have been in your corner. Does Donald Trump – of course Donald Trump doesn't want to be president. You can't make billions of dollars when you're sitting in the White House. Right. But – then you've seen the way his tone has changed over the last month or so, and he sounds like a guy who's figuring out, actually, wait a minute, I might actually be able to win this thing, and I could be in the most important job probably in the whole world, and I could do it better than anybody else can. That's what he thinks, to be clear. Yeah, I mean, it takes a big ego to be president to begin with, but this guy has has the ego to walk into the White House. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's an excellent point. Be, the debate before the penis debate, I... <laughs> It had oh, to God. be said. It I'm had to so be said. sad that we have we, something that's called the penis what's the, debate. What's that, just, what size are the hands? Yeah. Oh, okay. Very big hands. <laughs> uh, the I guarantee it. The the debate right before that, I ended up watching twice hmm. for for many I'm reasons. I'm so sorry. And the second time, you really saw how much he moderated hmm. on many of these positions that's on true. things like Planned Parenthood, for instance, mm-hmm. on issues like trade. Uh, he really sounds like a populist on some of them, almost like a Democrat. And so it's an evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody expects Trump to be consistent on any of these things. But the fact that he's not just saying the same thing over and over again to appeal to those really base conservative voters, the fact that he's actively trying to pull, pull more, more voters in really suggests that he thinks he can win this. To be clear. Almost like a Democrat. Almost. Almost. Because he does that whole Planned Parenthood spiel, and then he uh, then he basically says he'll still defund Planned Parenthood as long as they still have any clinics that provide abortions. He's very pro-public lands, up to a point uh, always, right, in which we basically actually spend the money on preserving them. Uh, he's got this whole thing on imminent domain, which is actually, I think, his smartest position that he has. It's the position he knows the most about. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, Jeb Bush had a pretty good pretty good attack on him. Who? <laughs> yeah. oh, Exclamation Jeb. point. Oh, yes, Jeb. Jeb, <laughs> Jeb sorry. <laughs> uh, but actually had a pretty good attack on him on, on actually what he did with imminent domain, right, as a, as a billionaire businessman in New Jersey. And so I think that is one thing, to Igor's point, that he's tried to do, not just try to moderate himself, but actually just try to sound reasonable. But, and, and, but and, let me ask you a question. Are, are we doing this, are we seeing the moderation and, and we're seeing some of this because he knows that people are preparing for a contested election and at some point he's going to have to moderate his tone for the general? Like, are we seeing that switch because he wants to seem more general election electable? I think so, and I think he has those vote those hardcore conservative voters locked up, right? And they kind of understand that he needs to play the game in order to be elected. I mean, there was a great quote uh, in the New York Times a couple of days ago from white supremacist groups who said, 
hey, we understand that he has to denounce us because he has to do whatever it takes to be elected. And I think it's kind of the same tone throughout the electorate. People think Trump is, is with them kind of no matter who they are. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of the potency of Trump is that he's able to rise above the partisanship and the politics and just say, hey, you know, I'm just a regular guy trying to make the country great again. I mean, I have a theory. Just oh, to just to just go. to get him. I got I got I got a strong original. I got a Trump ahead. theory. I think Michelle has probably heard me say this before. I don't think Donald Trump, as personally, is as nutty as Donald Trump, the presidential candidate, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and maybe Donald Trump, the president. But Donald Trump, personally, I don't think it's. I think Donald Trump had the ego to decide. I want to run for president. Maybe I can win. Maybe not. And he did some polling. And he asked some questions, and he realized that the Democratic Party was pretty settled, and the Republican Party is totally nuts. So I'm going to run as a Republican. And then in order to win the primary as a Republican, you have to say crazy things. And he has said the craziest of the crazy things, and he is winning. And he's, and he's to Igor's point, bringing in some, some somewhat new people into the party. He's a little bit rising above the partisanship, and he's – uh, you know, he has an opportunity to then go into the general election and be just a little bit more like himself as an entertainer. And I think he thinks he will draw in some independent and Democratic votes by doing that. So people who are disaffected by today's some politics. Some say that that's he's a right. big fear. I think that should be a big. It's, it's, it, it wasn't a fear for the Republican Party, and they are paying the price for it. And I think if the Democrats don't pay attention to that, it should be a fear for them, and they might pay the price for but it. But let's also look at who's in number two. So, like, number two right now is still Ted Cruz, which to me still represents this very far right wing of the Republican Party. So there's, like, a huge block of the Republican Party that are either believing the maybe falsehoods of Trump and then believing Ted Cruz. And then there's Rubio and Kasich somewhere down there. Yeah, And Ted Cruz isn't a guy who can just shake it off. Yeah. He can't shake it off He's in a the general. Mm-hmm. He's a believer. Yeah. And everything that he said in the primary about Planned Parenthood. Parenthood, about everything else, about same-sex marriage, et cetera, et cetera, is going to come back to bite him if he's the nominee. Well, and I think that's how you get the Sue Rothenberg argument from earlier today, that if either one of them is the nominee, you put the Senate for the Republicans in, in a very difficult, a big challenge for them to continue to win those seats. If Ted Cruz is your nominee. This is a guy that shut down the federal government over a policy that just recently reached the 20 million mark in Woo! how many people the ACA has insured. Right. I mean, to the reality of who this guy is uh, makes it uh, who's, real. Who's threatening to shut down again over the Supreme Court? Over the Supreme vacancy? Court nominee, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, right. And so, do your it, job. It, hashtag. If, <laughs> if you, if this guy's the front runner for the, for their uh, uh, nomination, they have a serious problem up and down the ballot. And I, I think that really speaks to the Lindsey Graham joke too about like who likes Ted Cruz? Nobody I, does. Silence. Nobody does. Silence. Yeah, wh- why do you? Why do people hate Ted Cruz as soon as they meet him? It saves a lot of time. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a Ted Cruz joke. (laughs) Oh, no. In studio, Igor and Benton. We'll be right back after the break. You're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. And if you want to chime in, give us a call, 888-6LESLIE, 888-653-7543. I'm your guest host for the afternoon, Michelle Jawanda. And we'll be back in one minute. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE.
Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host this evening and coming in with me in studio, we have Igor Vosky and Benjamin Strong back talking about the 2016 elections. Listen, we love hearing from you on this show. Give us a call, 888-6LESLIE, 888-653-7543, or follow along the conversation at Leslie Marshall, at Michelle Jawando, at Benton Strong, at Igor Volsky. Let's do it on Twitter. Okay. Can we talk about Marco? Please. Just a Hold little on. bit. Um, Marco Mentum. Because I think Marco, Florida is next week. Is that right? Tuesday. Tuesday. And they're really, really worried he's about to lose his state. Yeah. I mean, so Like, it, what happened? So right now he's tied with Trump. <laughs> yeah. He's tied. Start there. Okay. He's tied. Yeah. And if you, it, it, what's it most interesting is if you look at so far the history of this, this primary, a bunch of candidates have gotten out before they got embarrassed in their home state. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And 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 uh, John Kasich and Marco Rubio could both be next in the mm-hmm. next week. And but I think Rubio didn't think he was going to be here even a month ago. I think, I think Rubio thought he was going to do really well after Iowa, go to New Hampshire, go to South Carolina, and then that New Hampshire debate was a disaster. Yeah. And he has yet to recover. For anybody who thinks debates don't matter, Marco Rubio has yet to recover from that. There was somebody joking earlier today that uh, Puerto Rico is <laughs> Puerto Rico and Minnesota, the only two states he's won, but in states is what we right, was how we refer to that. Uh, I would not be shocked if Marco Rubio finishes low today if we don't see Marco Rubio next Tuesday. That would not surprise me at all. Although yesterday you had his aide scream at CNN for running a, a package suggesting that he's just about to drop out. So they've been pushing back against this hard. But yes, mm-hmm. depending on what happened today, we could have a whole different storyline. Here's my thing about Marco Rubio. I was floating this earlier and people weren't very excited, but I'll, I'll, I'll put Share this theory out there us, still. Igor. I really do believe that. If Marco Rubio stood up against Trump from day one, right. when right. Trump went out there in June, announced his candidacy mm-hmm. and called Mexicans rapists and criminals, and if he played that card this entire race, then look, maybe he still wouldn't be the nominee, but he would be closer than he is today, mm-hmm. and he would at least be known as the guy with a backbone. Right. And the guy who really stood for something, now he's known as somebody who makes penis jokes and really can't stand up to Donald Trump. I mean, he should have been doing what Lindsey Graham was doing in the undercard debate, but he should have been doing it every single day. Mm-hmm. And if he's really interested in expanding the tent and bringing in more more voters into the Republican Party and being the hope of the Republicans as they marketed him for years, then that's what he should have done. That that I think really has a lot to do with why he's not so is bouncing it too late more. For Marco? Well, no, but here's your issue with that, and I, I think that, that makes total sense. But that mm-hmm. suggested that Marco Rubio came into this race with a backbone. I mean, this is the guy. Well, it's just not who he is, right? That's I mean, this the is problem. the guy that's who the supported problem. comprehensive immigration reform until he didn't, right? I mean, the, the idea that he was ever going to have the kind of backbone but to stand up to fair, a bully like Trump. In those early debates, he was the only one who says, "Look, Donald, I never went after your money." So it seems like there's a piece of him. That wanted to kind of be that guy, but for whatever reason, he was afraid. It's to very clear to me out. that Marco is the guy who puts Marco first. It's Marco first and everybody else. And if I was advising him, I would say, 
Marco, it is to your benefit to do this. Mm -hmm. It will benefit you. Forget everything else. Forget the optics. This is going to be your brand. There's going to be a Trump and there's going to be an anti-Trump. And because they didn't invest in building Marco up as an anti-Trump, this is why you have the situation where maybe it's Cruz, maybe it's Marco. Nobody really knows because there's no anti-Trump for voters who are disgusted by Trump. And it's a lot of Republicans, right, Benton, to flock to because there's there's no established person to be that counterweight. But here's your problem. Here's your problem with today's, What's my problem? With, with today's Republican Party. That would be great. But we haven't had an anti-Trump since pre-Sarah Palin, John McCain in 2008. But also nobody's speaking to those voters. I mean, but, those no, voters are there, but, 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 but I agree with no, I, I think they, 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 they absolutely exist. exist. I think they, they absolutely do. exist. They but exist. here's your issue with, your, with today's Republican Party. Are they are, independents, though? That, and that's it. They have, flocked, a exactly, they have flocked away from the Republican Party. Because what you had was after the 2008 election, you had a Sarah Palin constituency that turned into the Tea Party, that became crazy Republican, that became Michelle Bachman, that became the 2012 race in which even Mitt Romney didn't stand up to the conservative wing of his party. That's why Mitt Romney was a completely untenable candidate for them. It sh- we should be shocked that Donald Trump is the nom- is going to be the nominee for the Republican Party. Every time the mainstream, quote-unquote, Republicans have had a chance to stand up to that wing of their party, they have stepped back and said, exactly. do we, what you want. Yes. Do what you want. Yes. That's but, why John Boehner okay. is not the speaker they anymore. The crazy but, let me, but, but let me add this to the mix. You had Mitt Romney. You had John McCain, who were your previous candidates for president, who no one would say that they were not establishment mainstream Republicans. Now, they may have said something different, but they weren't out of the party's main. Yeah, but John McCain picked Sarah Palin to be his running mate. I mean, that's yes. Like, but let's... to his credit, John McCain did, uh, on many instances, step in and say, you know, Obama's not a Muslim. Right. That's inappropriate. Right. He's a good man. To his credit, in the beginning, and maybe when he was picking Sarah Palin, clearly he nobody could have predicted that no, the Sarah no Palin he Sarah. chose in 2008 was going to become <laughs> the no, Sarah Palin no of today. Sarah. Which is why he, couldn't, why he shouldn't have picked her as a running voice, mate. Yeah. Right. There was that whole thing, but you know. <laughs> well, McCain, to his credit, did back away from the crazy. I mean, uh, he, of course, turned into a crazy anti-Obama, not after he lost, that is true. But in the campaign, he he showed that he certainly had more kind of integrity mm-hmm. and more of a character than Marco Rubio. So I would at least argue that, that much of this whole phenomenon of the Republican Party is a is a reaction to the person who currently sits in the White House. Yeah, 100%. And if you look at what's happened 100%. over the last month, then you listen to what Al Sharpton said, for example, about the Supreme Court nomination. And, and for our listeners who may not have heard that... The, 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 the Sharpton sat down in talking about the Supreme Court nomination process and said, is there a racial aspect to it? Of course there is. And there has been for the entirety of this president's tenure. If you look at the level of obstruction that Barack Obama has faced and who it has come from, you cannot at all argue that there is not some sort of racial element to it. Is it the whole thing? No. There are many reasons why these guys do what they're doing. But there's a simple reality of who the president is, who the people are obstructing him are, and how they're doing it. Yeah. And that's a pretty basic thing. And so I, I would very much argue from that 2000, late 2009, early 2010 period up to now, you're looking at – a situation that is largely reflective of the opposition to the current president, which makes the Marco Rubio thing so interesting. Because I agree with you, Igor. A spy, a, a Marco Rubio with a strong spine actually does transform the Republican Party. He's but no one's had that. There has not been a now. person who's been able to do that on any level of consistent basis because 
they haven't found a way to survive in the Republican Party in the last five years. Well, where do they, well this is to you, the point, I'm sorry, Igor, that I was raising earlier. Are those people now independents, and they're no longer a part of the party? They could be independents. They just could be inactive members of the Republican Party who are saying, this is just too crazy, and these candidates don't speak to me. And that's what I'm saying, is that there has to be someone in the Republican Party who goes against the herd, who reactivates those mm-hmm. voters, who speaks mm-hmm. to those voters, who brings them back to the table and says, you know what? Compromise? Flexibility? Not a bad thing. And the ironic part is, is that the man who's doing that now, ever so slowly, is Donald Trump, mm. who at the last debate talked mm. about flexibility and this Compromise. is what it takes and playing with the other side and, and a give and a take. That's the irony, mm. is that the guy who represents the extreme of what we saw from 2008 on, because Republicans built a platform through Sarah Palin and others mm-hmm. for Trump, he got up on that platform, and now he may be chipping away at it and showing that, hey, reasonable give and take can actually get something done. Right, Trump the businessman. I mean, right, right. No. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and your real question for this party at this point is, and, and to be clear, Marco Rubio's done. I mean, there's really just no mathematical way for him to catch up. But but he, he might be the future hope for oh. for the party in, in the long term because the question now is, can they do it in the existing structure of the Republican Party? Or in 2017, will there be a new Republican yeah, party? Will they have to rebrand? And, and if party. that's the case, and, and you're Marco Rubio, you have to think that you're sort of the front runner to make that happen. Benton Strong, Igor Volsky in studio. I've been your guest host the last three hours. It's always a pleasure to be with you on the Sally Mar- on the Sa- The reason I keep on saying Sally Marshall is because Sally Tucker is sitting next to me. But this is the one and only greatest show, one of the greatest shows around, the Leslie Marshall Let's Show. Let's have a applause for Michelle for hanging in there today while she's sick, everybody. Hey. Yay! I made it. Now I'm going to curl into my bed with some hot cocoa and call it an evening. You've been great guests, Benson and Igor.